2: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing, so we made ByHeart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: So, please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so, Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people.
1: The producers of
3: this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. There were, within one year, hundreds of babies disposed of in public drains, in harbours, in rivers. Uh, They were buried in backyards. There are some horrific stories
0: When you read as many true crime books as we all do, it seems a bit cliché to label a story a heartbreaking account of one woman's something, 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 fill in the blank. But when it comes to this book by academic Tanya Bretherton, I honestly can't think of any other way to describe it. It really is the heartbreaking story of Sarah Boyd, a Scottish immigrant living in Sydney in the 1920s who made an unthinkable decision. The truly shocking part of the story, though, is that it's a decision that wasn't uncommon for women living in Sydney, Australia at the time. In fact, it was one of a handful of difficult options faced by many women.
3: In a very unexciting way, I was doing some work for the New South Wales Government and I was looking at the history of adoption legislation in New South Wales and one of the stories I came across was the story of Sarah Boyd and what happened to her in the 1920s because the adoption legislation was brought in around the same time.
0: Which legislation was that? What changed in the 20s?
3: Well, this really was the first formal adoption legislation, as far as I understand it, in New South Wales, where children could be adopted out of -of out-of-home care before this, a lot of it was quite informal and had some pretty unsavoury practices around it as well.
0: So what, what do you mean by that? Say uh, a woman had a baby she couldn't care for or found herself unmarried and pregnant. How were informal adoptions carried out?
3: Well, we sort of had a situation where in a lot of cases where women were deemed immoral or unfit parents, because they'd had children out of wedlock, the state would step in and remove those children because they were considered a morally unfit parent. But then you also, in parallel to that, had a situation where if you were a wealthy family, if you were a connected family, a whole different set of rules applied. Um, So adoptions could occur, basically the power of money allowed people, expanded the choices that you had in terms of adopting children out.
0: And of course, we've got the Stolen Generations going on in parallel. Absolutely. The Christian churches were facilitating, again, rich white families in uh, adopting, I guess, um, Aboriginal children. Yeah, absolutely. And that's
3: right. That was, well, we know that's basically characterised all of the twentieth century as well, pretty much absolutely.
0: Well, there's more Aboriginal children removed from their families today than there were ever during the stolen generations, which bears mentioning. Very true. And Tanya, I was going to
4: ask when you mentioned unsavory, I know there was you know baby farming. Can you
3: explain that because that happened a lot, didn't it? It did. And we kind of have to understand these things in the the social and moral context of society at the time. So if a child was born out of wedlock, and I even hate that phrase, but we all know what it means when I use that phrase, it really was lifelong shame for both the mother and the child involved. So there, as you said, there's a whole lot of quite unsavoury things. There was baby farming. So it was kind of a, I don't want to use the term family daycare, but it was basically If you pay us, we'll look after your child for the social and family circle that you mix in. No one even needs to know that you're a parent and we will look after the child in our own home. And as we know, I'm sure people would be aware, a whole lot of horrible criminal activity happened around baby farming in the late 19th century and even into the um 20th century in sydney but in all of the capital cities really in in australia
0: honestly tanya i'm not aware and i you know i read a lot of true crime books i've heard the term but i don't know anything about baby farming i thought it was like those unwed mothers homes where they got all the girls there to have their babies i thought that's what the term meant
3: and that certainly existed we certainly had young unwed mothers homes but baby farming uh one of the most famous cases, which was in uh, McDonaldtown or in Erskineville in the late 19th century, a couple uh, took in several children over the course of a decade and were continuing to take payments from the parents for care of those children and were then murdering the children and burying them in the backyard. Oh my God.
0: In that instance, would that be if, say, I was an unwed mother, but my family was sort of fairly well off. So we could afford to pay this other family to raise the baby, and we didn't want the social consequences of anyone knowing that I'd had yeah. a baby. Look, that's possible. But
3: in the baby farming case in McDonaldtown, women who were struggling absolutely struggling and were putting every available bit of money they had into trying to make provision for a child that they knew they couldn't keep because society would would judge them so harshly for that decision but, but wanted the child to have a good start and in that case it, it ended very, very badly. And there were even situations in some of the research I've done around the orphanage structures that were all controlled by the churches, predominantly the Catholic Church, but there were other churches involved as well, Church of England as well. But baby farms were, it was sort of a small business. So in the very famous case around the McDonald family that ran the baby farm there, the reason why that family ended up doing that work uh, I think was because of a workplace injury that the father had sustained and it occurred at a time when, you know, there was no workplace health and safety. So it's not like he could get workers' compensation. Not that that justified the family doing what it did, but that was how they ended up in the the baby farming business.
0: So that's part of the research that you were working on for the New South Wales government. And You were working on the legislation that then came into being in the 1920s that formalised and tried to make some structures around adoption to prevent things like that, right? Yes, that's right. So did it improve the lives of women and children, that that legislation? Look, I think we're in a situation
3: where there's no doubt the subsequent pieces of adoption legislation, as you said, Our whole protocols around adoption have changed quite a lot over the course of 80 to 100 years. There's no doubt absolutely over time there's been a lot of improvements, but certainly the the suitcase baby, that particular story, it is an example of everything going wrong or how it can go wrong and has absolutely tragic consequences um, for both the child and the mother. So I came across Sarah's story randomly, really. I was looking at newspaper articles around the period of time that there was a lot happening in adoption change in New South Wales. And I came across this story of a baby in a suitcase washing up on a beach in Mossman. In the early morning, it was discovered by a Sunday school picnic group of children uh, which actually was not that unusual. So at the time, it was often children that made the discoveries of babies because we had a very different way of parenting then. So children were often played in the public streets. They rode go-karts. They played on abandoned lots. They often played on tram lines and on train lines. And that's often where these babies were disposed of. There were, within one year, hundreds of babies disposed of in public drains, in harbours, in rivers. Uh, They were buried in backyards. There are some horrific stories. Once children were born, the woman would often disguise the pregnancy so no one would know that she was even pregnant. She would give birth birth in private and find somewhere where she could uh, have the baby and then would suffocate the baby shortly afterwards and then dispose of it. And that was happening in Sydney. So Sarah's case was towards the end of 1923. That year had been characterised by hundreds of them.
0: Oh, my God. So these little kids were having a picnic this day and they found a suitcase. Tell us about that. Yeah, so they were having a Sunday
3: school picnic at Ashton Park, which is just on the beach off Mossman. A little boy and a little girl thought, great, suitcase. Someone's dropped this into the water. There'll be something really cool in here. And they popped the clasps and opened the suitcase and um, it was a newborn baby um, that had been strangled The child had a handkerchief shoved into its mouth and down its throat. That is actually how the suffocation had occurred, they think. The interesting thing about this case, and I think why Sarah's story is unique, is that it was almost impossible for the police to either identify the baby or identify anyone connected to the child. Sarah's case is unusual because she was one of the few that was prosecuted. So in Sydney at the time, a lot of people didn't have their own washing machines at home. They didn't have their own private laundry. Some people did, but an awful lot didn't. So there was a massive laundry business and they used a marking system where they would put your customer code effectively uh, write it basically on the corner of your washing, and it was the handkerchief that had been shoved into the child's mouth. It had a laundry mark on it, and that was actually how they located. So they traced the laundry code that was on the handkerchief. So it was Sarah, and she had a very close friend, Jean. And those two women were involved in the disposal of the child, but they were also two of the worst criminals that you could ever imagine. The fact that the handkerchief had an identifying mark, and also the fact that in the suitcase where they put the baby to dispose of the child by throwing a, throwing it into the harbour, they'd put a block of wood in and wedged it into the suitcase. I think thinking that it would make it sink. And of course, because it was wood, it had the opposite effect and it made it float. So the child in the suitcase actually floated around in the harbour for quite a few days before it was actually washed ashore at Mossman.
0: When the authorities tracked her down, where did they find her? Who was the woman that they discovered?
3: The laundry mark that was on that handkerchief was actually Jean's customer number. The police rocked up at the the hotel that Jean was staying at and saying, we've located this particular item. Is this your handkerchief? Yes, it is. Have you had a baby recently? No. We know, we've spoken to some of the people that are staying at this hotel, that you were hanging around with a woman. Where is she? And Jean said, Yeah, her name's Sarah and she's staying up at Gosford on an orchard and she pretty much was forthcoming. Sarah Boyd, they found her, she was living with a man that she'd met in Sydney um, on an orchard up towards Gosford. So that whole area north of Sydney, a lot of it was fruit growing. She'd met this fellow at a pub, Joseph Shorrock. They'd started a relationship. It was very early days. But one of the questions that you're left with, so Sarah made a decision to murder a newborn child. She actually had a three-year-old son, a little boy called Jimmy, and she was a doting mother. So the police located Sarah, removed Jimmy, and Jimmy ended up in the basically the orphanage system that we were talking about before.
0: The man that she was seeing, the new boyfriend, Did he know about the baby?
3: No, he didn't.
0: So that's a lot. It is. I mean, how long did it take the police to find her? Uh, Look, they found her within
3: the week, pretty much.
0: Yeah, so she's managed to conceal the end of the pregnancy, the birth of the baby and the trauma, presumably, of what's happened from this guy that she's seen, this new relationship. That's that's a lot. Oh, absolutely huge. And he was smitten
3: with her son. So I think there was sort of this idea that I've met this woman. I really love her son as well. It was sort of an instant family because he was a little bit older than Sarah. So he was in his early forties and Sarah was in her late twenties when all of this was happening. And um, again, another one of the questions that we have about how the state manages some of this and the value system at the time. Uh, Joseph wanted to adopt Jimmy and the state would not have it because it was not considered morally fit for a single man to parent a child.
0: I can understand why she's not told him about her pregnancy. She's met this guy. They've become friends or whatever. She likes him and it's it's turned into a, the early stages of a romance. And even though he likes the son that she's already got and he's accepting of that, I can understand why she decides against telling him she's pregnant as well. Look, it, it's one of those things that it's
3: hard for us at this point in time, where we are in history now, to see the incredible weight um, of shame that was tied up with all that stuff. It was a really, really big deal at the time if you had a child and you weren't married.
0: I mean, it's the shame, but it's also the economic factors. I think she's already raising one child by herself and if this guy has come along and he's a real possibility, real husband material, she doesn't want to jeopardise that either, to be frank, you know? Absolutely.
4: I guess part of your research with this book was trying to find out who the father was and what the circumstances were for Sarah. And it's not always, uh, well, we knew that a lot of the time it wasn't consensual, was it? No.
3: And I dug really deep (laughs) to try and find out basically who the baby's father was. And there were so many stories that circulated because Sarah would change the story as she needed to The rumour was that he was a ship's captain from New Zealand because Sarah had lived in New Zealand. She was a migrant. So she came from an industrial town in Scotland. So it was a very grim, low prospects, big family and a lot of poverty. So she wanted a better life for herself. So she migrated to New Zealand, which there was massive... Migration from Scotland to New Zealand uh, because there was an understanding that the climate was very much like Scotland. So a lot of Scots went to Auckland and Wellington. So Sarah attempted to do that. She literally couldn't find work. She found it almost impossible. Had heard a rumour that the prospects in Sydney were better bigger city because Sydney Sydney was a bustling metropolis at the time. The opportunities for work would be better. So she jumped across the pond and and attempted to to start a life here.
4: So she hadn't really been in Australia for that long um, when this
3: happened? No, no. It was uh, the matter of a a couple of months.
4: I mean, the baby was... A few weeks old, right? So yes. Sarah had had a bit of time to decide what she wanted to do and, and that was interesting in itself, I found.
3: Uh- Another huge question around all of this because in most cases, a lot of those other those cases that we were talking about that were happening in around Sydney, the baby would be born, the mother would spontaneously make the decision to most cases suffocate Or drown the child and then dispose of it. Sarah didn't do that for whatever reason, and we we won't ever really know what was going on. You know, maybe she had postnatal depression. It could mean any number of things, but she actually cared for the child for a couple of weeks. The child was well fed, was well looked after, she had clothing for it. So yeah, it's just another one of those things that, you know, we'll never really know the answer.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Sarah was captured by the police and ended up in prison. At the time, because we had mandatory capital punishment rules, so if a murder had occurred... You were sentenced for execution.
4: Jean was involved, Jean went to
3: court too, didn't she? She did. Can you tell us a bit about that because
4: she was implicated in it too.
3: So even the way that they the trials were structured and operated, so those women went on trial together, even though over the course of the evidence that was was put forward and the confessions really of the two women, Jean was seen as being an accessory. So she wasn't seen as being actively involved in murdering the baby, uh, but in the disposal and in covering it up. So Jean went to prison as well, um, but she only got two years.
4: This was a massive news story, wasn't it?
3: Oh, it was huge.
0: There was quite a big, um, like a lot of women really came out in support of Sarah, didn't they? Oh, yes. A local
3: Redfern woman called Annie Lee, who was kind of a, She was involved in the labour movement, but she was also a bit of a local, well-known local woman. She pretty much rallied or started a huge media campaign, I guess, to sort of raise awareness to Sarah's circumstances, to basically say, one, this story is more complicated than it looks like from the outside. Yes, she's confessed to this murder, but There's a whole lot of complex circumstances going on around this and it was basically Annie who kind of put together a case for getting her sentence commuted uh, so that it would just become a life sentence so that she wouldn't be hung for it.
0: The campaign didn't end there, did it?
3: No. At the time, Sarah's locked up. She's in the women's prison. Jimmy's being cared for in... What was the foster care system at the time? It looked very different to what it does now, but with a foster family. And Annie campaigned, worked with the state government, basically did this massive fundraising to kind of fund her legal campaign as well to say for compassionate reasons, this woman has demonstrated that she can be a good mother, but because of the... Horrible circumstances that she found herself. She made a, did something that was just unthinkable. So Sarah was only actually in prison. 1923 was when she committed the murder. She was out in 1927 as a result of Annie Lee's campaign. And part of the success, I guess, of the campaign was around Jimmy needs to be with his mother again. Mm. So we need to release this woman from prison so she can actually parent the child that she's got. Oh, gosh.
4: You know, hearing that, it, it's actually surprising and really amazing that the campaign was so successful because the legal establishment was all male. Yes. There was not much understood about mental health or or really the circumstances. Of, you know, women in those situations were coerced into sex, raped, just yes. left, oh, you yeah. know, the, the blokes left them and... and men in control of these decisions really didn't
0: care about that. And that's not the end of it, Em. Not only was she released from prison, but Annie had raised enough money to do something else amazing.
3: Yeah, so it's endlessly fascinating to me, that relationship between Annie and Sarah, because Annie basically was going to the women's prison. She just had built up a relationship with Sarah. And she'd raised enough money, Annie had raised enough money because she'd been, she was connected to a lot of the labour organisations that were, uh, unions that were operating in Sydney at the time. I know that the guys that basically were doing the early work on the bridge were big um, contributors to the campaign. So she had raised enough money for uh, to pay for Sarah and Jimmy's passage back to Scotland. And Sarah said, I don't really want that. I think if Jimmy's happy and he's got, you know, more of a chance of a, you know, a good life with a local Sydney family, I I think he'd be better off staying with the woman who's currently caring for him. And and Annie got these shits I don't blame her
0: because that's the whole basis of her campaign. Yeah, Yeah. she
3: got the shits.
0: I suppose Sarah... Who knows the added shame that she's encountered in this time in a women's prison, by the way. There's still in a women's prison for women who have hurt their children. It's not an easy time. So imagine back then. Plus, Sarah has not seen her son Jimmy in, what, four years? Yeah. So yeah. it's daunting and so now Annie's saying, great news, um, you're getting out of jail, you can have your son back and I'm sending you back home to Scotland with him. Like yes, <laughs> she hasn't been to Scotland yeah. in a long time. No. It's daunting. I can understand it's daunting. And were the conditions of her release that she go
3: back to Scotland? Yeah, you? pretty much. So that they, they, that was the condition. We, we don't want you to continue living here. We'll let you out but you got to go, <laughs> go back.
0: Do you have any uh, information about her after that about her life when she got back to scotland no
3: it was one area that i dug really deep on the trail went completely cold Mm. on sarah we do know what happened to jimmy and that again it's one of the questions around this story where it's (laughs) mind-boggling um what actually happened I hope you had a good life, Tanya. But I'm going to wait with
0: bated breath. Yes, absolutely. Because we have to read the book, "The Suitcase Baby," that you've written. A desperate mother, a shocking crime. In the writing of this book, I can imagine the research must have been like just so all encompassing. I could. It was one of those ones where you just weren't weren't showering for a couple of days or weren't sleeping. Oh,
3: absolutely. At- I know that when I'm researching it, if it sounds warped, but if it makes me cry, then I know I'm onto something.
0: No, I get it. Totally. Yeah. You get you get what
3: I mean. Yeah. yeah. And this story had multiple, it, 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 it rolled on. It happens less now because it's obviously a couple of years since I've done the research for the book. But there were all of these locations across Sydney where I'd catch a train, go into the city and oh, okay, that's Belmore Park. I know that a child was found wrapped up in newspaper and left on a park bench there. There was another child in Sarah's case. Uh, She strangled her baby and put it in a suitcase and then caught a ferry across the harbour and chucked it over the back of the the ferry.
0: So when did this phenomenon come to an end, this terrible phenomenon of, Women feeling as though this was their only course of action. well, it's
3: it, I think this one of the strange things I think about stories like this is that there are still children being abused, killed, and disposed of. We still have these strange cases that we can't explain, but it did gradually get better. Definitely World War II helped. All of the stuff that we know around changing gender roles, more economic independence for women, all of that stuff helped in terms of expanding, I think, the the range of choices that women had available to them. And the fact that in Sarah's context, there was no concept of structured state social welfare um, it was all run, effectively run by the churches, um, which what came with that was a whole lot of moral oh, yeah. expectation. Yeah, a, a whole lot of moral. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, quite.
4: and the shame. And and also, you know, I think intersecting with that too was all the abortion laws because, you know, when you, I'm sure you've found it too, Tanya, you go through a lot of old newspaper articles and see all these women and some men on trial for deaths, murders, and and, and women were found dead, and it was often from um,
3: illegal abortions. And, and that absolutely was happening at exactly the same time that Sarah's case was happening. So in court in the very same week, there were abortion cases that were being put, you know, through the court system in the very same week that all of Sarah's trial was happening. But again, Sarah, she's quite apart from the risks that women faced in trying to resolve the issue in that way. Sarah was a migrant who knew absolutely nothing about the sort of local Sydney system. So I think it would have, even if she wanted to get an illegal abortion, it would have been very, very difficult. She just didn't know anyone.
0: Everything you've told us today, I mean, in a short period of time, you've told us some really horrific stories about women who lived only 100 years ago in Australia, in Sydney. It's not that long ago, is it really, when you think about it? No, it's really not at all. And uh, I always say it could happen again and we have to be vigilant. Sometimes people go, well, who cares about what happened X amount of years
4: ago, but you see things cropping up today. It's like going backwards, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, this is what happens when women don't have access to, you know, appropriate health care and things like terminations and things like that. You
4: know, it just feels like there's a lot of correlations to what's happening today with a reversal of attitudes about women and about, I mean, mental health's more understood, but still, newspaper articles, when something like this happens, it's pretty not very sympathetic or it doesn't give any nuance around things, which, of course, media doesn't do that.
0: No, but there's not a lot of interest in understanding how, why. No, people don't do they? They don't want to know why. They just
3: like very black and white with it. No, that's right. But I agree with you. We do not want to go backwards. When you see what has happened in the US with the rolling back of, yeah, it makes you weep.
0: Thank you to our guest today, Tanya Bretherton. Her book, The Suitcase Baby, is out now. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
2: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available.